men that have been there, we've been doing, uh, you know, critiques on the teacher and all this sorts of thing. Of course, I had to go first, and the very first critique was, you should be on time. As you can see, I've not learned from that one. But, regardless. It's um, funny, I think all of us um, have been in uh, a time or have had the experience where you've looked at somebody and you don't know who this person is, you have never met this person before, yet you know they must come from some family. You know, every family has like some kind of identifying mark, right? You know, the Jinx family has certain identifying marks that... Uh, that there are. Uh, other people have other sorts of identifying marks, I'm sure. Um, some people have big noses. Some people have big heads. Some people have no hair. Um, you know, all kind of different things that identify people um, by their families. It's just, just an interesting thing, um, I guess, when you think about it. And it's, it seems like the way of the world, uh, that those who are in your family, they behave like you, or they look like you, or they act like you, and they share some kind of commonality in that way. And I think that makes sense. And just as we share some commonalities with our physical family, it should also, therefore, make sense that we share some kind of commonality with our spiritual family. And so today what I want to look at is uh, the idea of we have a Holy Father so we ought to be holy children. Um, you know, our father doesn't have a, a big nose and no hair, per se, um, but he is holy, and he calls us to be holy. And so we're going to be looking at that a little bit today. So today's takeaways. Um, first, we want to learn from the Old Testament. What does it mean to be holy to God? And by, by all means, this is going to be 30 minutes or so, and there's no way that we're going to be able to extensively go through every single thing that the Old Testament teaches us about holiness. Um, but we're going to learn a little bit about it. And we'll look specifically at the beginning uh, of the nation of Israel to get a couple ideas from that. Second, we'll reflect on Jesus' life um, as what it means to be holy, as a perfect example of holiness, recognizing, of course, Jesus is God's Son just as we are God's children. Uh, and it only makes sense to look as, at the, the firstborn, I guess, as the example uh, of what we ought to be like. And then we'll consider that we also must be holy, just as God is holy. Kind of the theme of what we've been looking at this year. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, these three key takeaways, hopefully if you fall asleep for the next 28 minutes, and you wake up and I show you these again, this is what you'll remember. I don't know if that will happen, but some of you I saw had some Benadryl, so I don't know. Anyhow. So we want to look at this whole idea of being holy children to our Holy Father. It's interesting, right, when we go to Genesis chapter 1. And we just covered this in our class just a few months ago. When God created man, we have this phrase that's used, that God created man in his own image. And... I, again, this is not like, you know, we created us with two arms and two legs and two eyes and two ears and a tongue and a nose. You know, it's not like that. But it doesn't really give us a whole idea of what does that exactly mean. 
And people have all kinds of ideas about, well, it means that we seek righteousness like God, or it means that we are inherently good like God, or, or, or whatever. Um, but I just kind of take it as it, what it says, face value, that we are created to be like God, in His image, like Him. And kind of along those lines, if we look to the New Testament, for example, and we've been looking at this as our, um, as our theme verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, Starting in verse 13, it says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice this phrase. I don't know if you've noticed this before. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I holy. And so, what God calls us, then, is not to conform to the world, but, and as is right said there in verse 14, as obedient children, we ought to conform to the Holy One. To conform to be like Jesus. To conform to be like God. And so that's what we're going to be talking about, like I said tonight. That we need to be able to be identifiable as us children by our holiness. Just like someone might say, well, I know that's Wes because he's bald just like his dad. Uh, or any number of other people. I pick on Wes because I know he doesn't care. Um, but, you know, as, as we might look at someone else and say, oh, yeah, I, I know he is, you know, such and such from such and such family because of his or her whatever. People ought to be able to look at us and say, wow, you know, that person must be part of God's family because he's an awfully, awfully holy person. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about what that means and, and how we can be more holy, uh, I guess, and, and all that sort of thing. So, the meaning of holiness. I find it very interesting that as you go through the Bible, it doesn't, you know, as, as you're reading through it, right, it doesn't like come out and say, bam, 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 you've got to be holy right away. Uh, in fact, it, it, you don't even get like a dictionary with the Bible, unfortunately, unless you buy some other guy's dictionary. Um, but, you know, you get the Bible and you don't get like a dictionary that says, well, this word means such and such. And, and the people of Israel, they didn't have such a dictionary that says, okay, well, you're going to be holy, which means A, B, C, third definition comes from the Latin, which means such and such. Um, they were just kind of instructed. And it's interesting when you read the book of Genesis that you will not find the word holy. I find that really interesting. That, the, that throughout the whole beginnings, if you will, of God's people, from the creation, through Noah, through Abraham, I mean, if you thought somebody was going to be holy, you'd say, oh, probably Abraham, right? The, the word is not even mentioned. The word is not even said. And in fact, the first time that we even see the word holy is in a, in, in a situation where you're like, well, I don't really, why is this even holy? Why, why are we even going there? And that's in Exodus chapter 3, if you want to turn there. I think Wes, uh, I know Wes actually touched on this in his sermon a few weeks ago, The Beginnings of Holiness, part 1. But if you look in Exodus chapter 3, I want you to notice with me verses 1 through 5. This is the first time that the children of Israel would have seen the word holy. It's interesting. Verse 1 through 5. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come here. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I want you to think about that. If you're Moses, you put yourself in that situation, and somebody says to you, okay, uh, don't come near here, uh, because this is a holy area, holy ground, so you need to take your shoes off. What would that mean to you? What would that spark in your mind as, as someone says, this is holy ground, therefore you need to take your shoes off? What would be the reason that you would think that they are, that, what does it mean to be holy? What, what is so special about this ground that, you know, I can't come near without taking my shoes off? I don't know. Um, I think to myself, if I was Moses, why would I need to take my shoes off to approach God in this burning bush. And the only thing that I can consider is that perhaps God was, this was maybe the first time that God was associating holiness with himself, for one, but with purity, with cleanliness. He's taking, you know, think about, you know, this is like my mother. I'm reaching back to my childhood and my own house now. When I come into the house, what do you want to do? Take your shoes off. Why do you take your shoes off? don't want to get the place dirty. So I, in my mind, I'm thinking holy ground is a place which is supposed to be clean. It's supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be undefiled. And, like I said, this, when we think of holiness, we don't think of ground, per se. Um, but that's the first time that God used it, perhaps because it's something that we can clearly understand. That this is something that's supposed to be pure, undefiled, clean. We move on from there, and you want to know what the next time that the word holy is used? Exodus chapter 16, with regard to the Sabbath. That there is to be a holy Sabbath. And this is with respect to the manna that they're supposed to have, uh, or rather collect. And in verse 23, it says, He said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Again, you've got to put yourself in the position of the Israelites and consider you're being told that this is a holy day. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, some kind of special day. Something related to the Lord. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Something that's related to God. Something that maybe belongs to God. I think back to uh, Genesis chapter 2. And, and you may remember this. This is... Perhaps, uh, not perhaps, this is kind of a root uh, or a similar word to holy used in Genesis chapter 2. But you'll notice in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and notice this word, sanctified it. That's the only time you're going to see a word that's almost like holy. You don't see that word anywhere else in Genesis. But you see this idea that it is sanctified, that it is holy-fied, if you want to put it like that. Uh, And so again, you have to ask the question, well, what does this mean to Moses? 
what does this mean to the Israelites that I've got this, okay, I've got holy ground that means kind of like pure or I can't walk on it, it's got to be clean. Now I have this day that's just to the Lord, that belongs to the Lord. This is something that He has made that, that belongs to Him. Um, so we kind of are starting to get more of a picture of what, what does this mean to be holy? Because again, recognize, the Israelites don't have like the big book of holiness uh, at this point in time to tell them what does it mean to be holy. Now we can go on from there in Exodus chapter 19 and another example of holiness, and this is an important one. Because in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5 it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, or keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's interesting, again, that God tells the people that they can be a holy nation. Now, kind of add those things that we've been talking about. They're going to be the clean. They're going to be a pure. They're going to be undefiled. They're going to be belonging to God. But there's it's almost another condition here that's kind of brought up, isn't there? What's, what's going to be required for them to be this holy nation? Well, if they will indeed obey the voice of God. And so I think that we have to add that in there as well. The idea that it is something that God authorizes or that God instructs. Uh, it is something that is glorious. It is something that is chosen above other things. We won't go through them, but if we go to Exodus, particularly chapters 25 through 40, excepting those few chapters that are not so good, and Leviticus and Numbers, and Deuteronomy even as well. Um, but particularly those three, we see all kinds of information about things that are holy, things that are not holy. Uh, we see how the sacrifices are holy. We see that the tabernacle is holy. In fact, it even has a special place called the holy place. And you have the holiest place, or the most holy place, or the holy of holies, however you want to call that. You have even a special place within the tabernacle that is holy. The robes of the priests are holy. The crown that the high priest would wear is holy. And all these sorts of things. And God is just saying, this is holy, this is holy, this is holy, this is holy. And as he's instructing these people, you're starting to understand, well, what does God mean by this holiness? Well, the things that he's talking about are, are what is holy. Now, to contrast that, let's talk about Leviticus chapter 10. Because in the midst of all this holiness... There is something else that is not. And so sometimes you can describe something uh, by what it is, and sometimes you can describe things by what it's not. Sometimes that helps. And when we look at Leviticus chapter 10, we read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, these would be priests, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I want you to notice this in verse 3, because this is kind of like the key. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. So 
you can see that, you know, we've been talking about a couple of things that are holy, pure, commanded by God, glorified, chosen by God, set above everything else, in fact. And now here we have an example of something that is not holy. Native and Abihu, they, I mean, they intended to worship God. They intended, I, I think, to, to bring glory and honor. But it was not what God had authorized. It was not what God had said was holy. And so, again, we can see that things are holy in, in a sense because God says that they're holy as well. The scripture reading that Wes did for us, 11, uh, Leviticus chapter 11. And as you read through Leviticus, there's all kinds of things. Unclean, not unclean, clean, holy, not holy, all these kinds of things. And I kind of keyed in on this here in verse 43. It says, Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm. Shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you, uh, so that you become unclean. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. When I read through Leviticus, and like I said, particularly this part, I think of God giving all these requirements and God giving all this information about, well, this is holy, this is holy, this is holy. And there's a lot of stuff in Leviticus about things that are not clean, things that are uh, abominable or of the earth and, and all these sorts of things. And what I find is interesting is the contrast here. That God, in verse 43, tells them that they should not become unclean with these things. But rather, in verse 44, they ought to consecrate themselves and be holy. And so again, you see that kind of idea of purity and being not undefiled, spotless, without blemish. Some of these words that I'm using, I'm using on purpose because they should remind you of some other places in the Bible which have similar ideas and similar concepts. And God calls them to not be unclean, but rather to be consecrated, purified, and to be holy just as God is holy. In fact, and this is interesting, I thought as well, in Haggai chapter 2, to be holy is to be exceptional. Is to be the exception. In fact, it, the, the idea is basically that everything else is not holy, except for what God has said is holy. In Haggai chapter 2, in verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. And again, the idea that we can take from this is holiness is directly opposed with uncleanness. Holiness is cleanliness, is purity. Again, all these words that we've been saying before. And the Old Testament was pretty good at teaching us what it means to be holy. Because it used these very physical examples, this very physical language, this very physical law, to help to instruct the people, kind of, as Paul says, as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, to bring them to Christ. 
That's what it means to be holy, to be pure, to be clean, to be like God. And, and we're talking about how God is holy. God is all these things. God is exceptional. God is pure. God is purified. God, all these things that we've been talking, set apart, glorious, uh, above all things. That's what it means to be holy, and that is God. That's our Father. Now we've got a heavy task ahead of us, of course, because if this is our Father, and we ought to be like Him, it's pretty difficult. Well, to try to, you know, if, if, we, if we look at God and we say, well, we need to be like God, and we recognize God's power and, and His purity and His holiness and all these things, that can be, to me at least, that can be very hard. Uh, because who can be like God? Um, but I think that's why we have Jesus. Uh, or that's a, a reason that we can look to Jesus, let's say. Because Jesus was uh, a man. He came to earth. He, he was on the earth. He experienced uh, the things that we experience. And yet we know that Jesus was holy. Jesus maintained his holiness. Let's back, go back to 1 Peter, because it's very interesting, and we're going to kind of follow through this passage just a little bit. In 1 Peter chapter 1 again. Let's continue on, starting in verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, notice this, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus, when you look at some of the words that are used to describe him, he is the spotless lamb. He is the holy one of God, the holy one of Israel. I won't turn there, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, you have even the unclean man says, uh, you are the holy one of God. Uh, and even he knows. Uh, we see the same thing in James chapter 2. Even the demons knew that this was Jesus, uh, the Holy One of God. And we can look to Jesus as is our example. We can look to his life and we can understand how he lived his life was a perfect example of what holiness means. For example, Matthew chapter 4. I want you to just think about this. And this is a, probably a, a very familiar phrase, a uh, very familiar passage to you. Uh, Jesus being tempted in chapter 4. He's up, and he's being tempted by the devil. And I don't know about you, but this seems like a really tough situation for anybody to be put in. Yes, it's Jesus. Yes, you know, he has far more knowledge and, and understanding than, than we do. But imagine the situation that Jesus is put in here. He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. In the wilderness. And the devil comes to him in this, this state of weakness, the state of uh, whatever words you want to use to describe someone that would be like that. 
And he's just hitting them time after time after time with these, what I would say to be pretty difficult situations, pretty difficult temptations. He says, Jesus, you're pretty hungry, man. Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Why don't you just do that? And Jesus doesn't go, well, you know, I'll just make one. You know, that will at least be, be all right. Jesus is firm. Jesus is totally pure, totally clean, totally unspotted from the temptations of the devil. He rebukes, of course, the devil. And I'm not going to read through this because I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with this story here. But he rebukes the devil time after time after time. And how does he rebuke him? Straight from the Scripture. talks about, notice, the dependence upon God. Verse 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice, verse 7, how he puts uh, the, the, the recognition, the, the, the honor that he has for God. You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And finally, in verse 10, how he places God in this position of authority, uh, exalted above all. You shall worship the Lord, your God, and Him only. That's the attitude that Jesus had. And even as Jesus was going through all these temptations, and as we'll see in a moment, he was spotless from it. He was unblemished. He was sinless. He always put God, God's authority, uh, God's will, even above his own. A passage that strikes me pretty strong is Matthew chapter 17 with regard to Jesus. This will be in the transfiguration. Again, put yourself in the position of some of those apostles that, are, that were there. Let's say you're Peter, and you're sitting there watching this event. And in verse 5, as you're watching, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I feel like that would be a really um, scary, almost, situation. Uh, a situation where you're, you're on one hand in awe, but in another, another I guess, you're, you're afraid uh, about, about what this means. But what you see here is God's pleased with Jesus. God is pleased with what he is doing. God is pleased with what he has done. God is pleased with what he has said. Up to this point... He is pleased with Jesus. And I think to myself, and this is kind of like a diversion, but I think to myself, I hope that you know, when we stand before judgment, God could say the same thing about us. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. I am pleased in this one. Enter in. That's a hard, that's a hard thing, I think, for us to be able to, to challenge ourselves, to be able to be like that. If this is my beloved son, that, that God would be able to say that of us. We see further on, Hebrews chapter 7. That Jesus is our high priest. But again, we notice the the words that are used here to describe him. In Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says, but Jesus, on the other hand, speaking of course in contrast with the other priests. On the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
I want you to notice these adjectives that are used to describe Jesus here in verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the law of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Again, I look at at Jesus and I look at these words that are used to describe him. Can we use those to maybe describe ourselves? Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. These are strong words. These are tough things that are, we're being challenged to be. Uh, and, and I think that that's something that we can look at as well. One last um, passage that we're going to look at on this subject. 1 Peter chapter 2. We talk about the Christ being our example. We see his holiness here. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Again, we're going to see some things that we ought to be following in his footsteps. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Again, we see our example in Jesus. Of course, we see this in reference to his death on the cross. But throughout his life, is that not who Jesus was? One who had no sin who did not revile in return, who entrusted himself to God. Think about his prayer in the garden. Not my will, but your will. That's the holiness that we see in Jesus. That's the purity, the unblemished lamb of God, the spotless lamb, like we saw with the Passover, those who were in the class this morning. That's Jesus. And so, it ought to be with us as well. We're going to see this in just a moment. But we were predestined to be conformed to Jesus' image. To be conformed to his image and also to be his brethren. I find that very interesting. Jesus is holy. He is our brother. And we are to be holy as our brother. The firstborn of God is holy as well. And that brings us to our final thought. That we ought to be children of God that are holy as well. 1 John, if you read through 1 John, there's a whole lot of stuff about us being children. And it's really, uh, it's really some good stuff. I want to just read 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 9. A lot of this stuff is going to be very self-explanatory. But I want us to, to really see the holiness that God calls us to be, that we ought to be children of God, and specifically what that means for us. 
Starting in verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself, just as He is pure. Again, we see that idea of purity, of holiness there. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Again, go back to what we talked about, the very first thing. Talking about being a family, being holy, being having this identifiable mark. Being born of God means you don't practice sin. That's tough. That's a tough thing. And again, we've got to move on uh, for sake of time, but we need to look at these passages and, and really recognize the, the weight that God places on our purity and our spotlessness, our righteousness. Move on to, to Ephesians chapter 2. This is another passage that I, I found intriguing. When you think of a, a father, you think of somebody who is, at least I do, somebody who's nurturing, somebody who's trying to build somebody up, somebody trying to develop them and, and lead them in the path. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have kind of a, another uh, analogy that's used, but the same idea of this being built up or being developed. In verse 10, that we are the worksmanship, for we are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. This is why we're being developed. We're being built up for this purpose, for righteousness, for good works. I think back to Exodus chapter 19. How can we be part of this holy nation? Or how would they be part of the holy nation? By obeying what God said to do. And so... We see that here. We're being built up for these good works. Dropping down to verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into, what? A holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Not only are we part of the family, but this, this analogy, is, it's like we're, we are one with the building. We are one with the temple. We are one with Christ. That's pretty powerful. Colossians chapter 3. If you want to talk about what it means to be holy and pure, this is a pretty good passage. And, and we don't really have a lot of time to read through all this. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. But what I want you to notice about this, as you read through this, starting in verse 5, it says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. When I'm reading these things, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking in Leviticus about all those unclean things that you're not supposed to be around. All those, you know, weird insects and funny little creatures and things you're not supposed to eat. Well, instead of not eating a locust or whatever, you're not supposed to be saying things. Or you're not supposed to be uh, full of this lust or slander, saying the things that that, that God is talking about. Verse 9, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, notice this, according to the image of the one who created him. We need to put aside this evil. Put aside the uncleanliness, the the dirtiness, the filth that we find in this world, and put on the image of God, the holiness of God, the one that's created us for this purpose. To do these good works. Uh, again, it's a hard challenge. But as God is, so we ought to be as well. Romans chapter 12. As we begin to wrap up here. We commonly focus on the fact that in Romans chapter 12, that we need to present our bodies to God and you know, live continuously for God and be a sacrifice to Him. But I want you to notice the word that slipped in there. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then if you follow, kind of explains that a little bit, doesn't it? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good, and acceptable and perfect. What are we to do to be holy children of God? I think the New Testament and and the Bible is pretty clear on what we ought to be doing. We ought to obey. We ought to put aside the filth of the world and we need to put on Christ. Put on the image of God, the one who has created us. Back to 1 Peter. And we're going to close up with this. Just Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll pick up in verse 22 where we left off. I want you to see this. Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You have been born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. Interesting to me, again, how is it that we are purified? How is it that we can be made pure? How is it that we can be made holy? It's not some like mystical process. It's by obedience. Just as when we saw back in in Exodus chapter 19, how was Israel to be a holy nation? By obedience to God. And so, that brings me to this question. If we go back to 1 John chapter 3. You know, we talked about being a son of God, a child of God. What does that mean? The question I need to ask is, whose child are you? Verse 10, 1 John chapter 3. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor the one who does not love his brother. How can we be holy? How can we be acceptable to God? How can we be purified? How can we be presented spotless, unblemished, just as God our Father is? By obedience to Him. And the alternative, of course, as we can see here and in other passages, if you're not a son of God, you are a son of the devil. And that's the choice that we need to make. We either obey God and His become His children, or we don't. And we are children of this world, children of, of the devil. One final passage. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is Moses, of course, just before he's about to die and he's given his encouragements and admonitions to the people. I want you to notice this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations, with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. God considers us a special treasure. God considers us to be above all else, above all others. This is the nation that he has chosen above all others to save. And in Deuteronomy, he's talking about how the people were saved from from Egypt and from Pharaoh. But today, he saved us from a much stronger power than Egypt and Pharaoh. He saved us from sin and the devil. That should be something that encourages us. That God would put us in that position to feel that we are his, his special treasure above all others. And so we also must be holy. And we can see that, what does that mean? It means obey. It means we need to do what we ought to do. In review, we talked tonight about three things. One, that we need to learn from the Old Testament what it means to be holy to God. And they use a lot of physical examples, but I think it helps us greatly to understand what does it mean to be holy to God. We can reflect on Jesus' life. Jesus was holy. What does that mean? Well, when you look at his life, it's pretty clear what it means to be holy. The descriptors, the actions that he takes, how he stands against sin and stands for his Father. And finally, we must also be holy. Just as God is holy, we too must, must take that on and, and strive each day to put aside uncleanness and filthiness and to put on God. Tonight, uh, there may be some among you that are in a state of filthiness, in a state of uncleanness in a state that isn't pure 
and holy as God would want you to be. Perhaps you haven't been baptized yet. Perhaps you're not a Christian. If you're in that state, then we know what you need to do. You need to repent, confess, and be baptized so that you can be made pure. Uh, It's very interesting that the Old Testament talks about water and the cleansing power of water. And so it is today. You can be cleansed by the waters of baptism. Or if you have some other need and you've been struggling with some other sin or some other kind of concern in your life, uh, of course we are here uh, ready to serve you in, in, in whatever way we can. Just make your need known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.